A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Good evening, with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored in honor of the Bayre Oilam for everything he does for our family, the Jewish people, and the entire world and to help everyone speedily get through the COVID pandemic. This episode is uh, part three about the Chazoin Ish, or Bavrom Yishaya Karelitz, one of the greatest uh, Torah leaders of the 20th century. We did parts part one, uh, I don't know, a while ago, a year or two ago, I think. And then part two we did a few months ago. And here we are with uh, part three. In order to get the the narrative in its entirety. So together, when I post this episode, I'm going to put the links to parts one and two, so just to get a fuller picture in case they're hard to find, so this way you have it right on the spot, and it'll be easier to uh, to get the parts one, two, and three together since they were not uh, uh, initially posted together. So where I ended off with part two uh, last time was the in the 1930s, we got the Chazanish to the land of Israel in 1933. Uh, I spoke a little bit about his initial years settling in the land of Israel in the small little uh, new settlement of B'nai Brak um, near Tel Aviv. And I ended off with Chazanish's involvement with the building of B'nai Brak institutions and religious infrastructure and the, um, the uh, beginning of a very fruitful partnership that he had with Yaakov Halperin, who was a wealthy businessman, a Chartkov Chassid, who basically um, partnered with the Chazanish, and and, um, and the Chazanish was able to uh, uh, bring a lot of his vision to fruition through the generosity of Yaakov Halperin. And also I mentioned the founding of Kail Chazanish in 1936. So that's where we're holding. We're holding in the mid-1930s, the Chazanish, after most of his life had spent in Lithuania and then Quite a few years in Vilna, he had moved to uh, Palestine and has started his activities here. So here comes part three of the story of Rabbi Ramishai Karelitz, the Chazanish, one of the most influential Torah leaders of the 20th century. And uh, it's going to be about his later years, leading up to the state, uh, founding of the state, and the early years of the state, and eventually in his final years when he comes to national leadership and his you know, the reason that he's famous today is because of those last years. Now, I don't guarantee that we're going to be able to get and finish everything this time. There might have to be a part four. We'll see how far we get. I don't know as of now. 
Um, I prepared all the material for the till the end, but I don't know if, if the time constraints will allow it. And I have no problem with having a part four um, if if it's necessary. So let's see how far we get in the Chazanish's life and story and leadership uh, through this time. And if we can finish it all now, that's great. If not, then we'll just have another installment later on. In the summer of 1934, the Chazanish um, suffers... Uh, from you know, he suffered from weak health his entire life, but he became very weak. Um, and Halprin, Yaakov Halprin, got him to be examined by a doctor who advised the Chazanish to go on an extensive vacation, rest. So he goes up to Tzfas with Halprin. Um, Tzfas subsequently became his vacation spot. He really enjoyed it a lot, and he'd continue going there for the rest of his life. He'd even recommend it to others. So if you want a vacation, with the Askam of the Chazanish, then you should go to Tzfas. Uh, he'd also, quite, interesting, he'd, he'd also go quite often to the ocean, which was near Bnei Brak. By some accounts, he even went once a week, which is interesting. I don't know if that's true. Maybe it was only during the summer. I have no idea. But he definitely went to, to the ocean. Either way, following his vacation in Tzfas, he began to feel better. He returns to Bnei Brak with renewed energy. And it was around this time that his sister Tzivia and her husband, Reb Shmuel Greinemann, moved to Palestine, and this greatly assisted the Chazanish. The next few years would see the Chazanish slowly rise to a leadership position, and how it happened was largely due to, from afar, far away in Vilna, Reb Chaim who was his patron. I mentioned that in the first two parts. So the Chazanish also became more involved, at least unofficially, he never takes an official position within the organization, with the Agudas Yisrael organization in the land of Israel, and especially of the new agricultural settlement, settlements of the Poale Agudas Yisrael, which was a a um, a a, a um, daughter organization or a subsidiary organization of the Agudas Yisrael. So one of the first political issues on which the Chazanish expressed his opinion was the burning issue of the day uh, of the Agudas Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael, that is, um, the uh, that of resigning membership from what was called the Knesset Yisrael. The Knesset Yisrael was what the British mandate recognized as the Jewish community, and it, it was controlled by the institutions of the Yishuv, which was primarily secular, and the religious arm of it was the chief rabbinate. And the uh, Agudas Yisrael elements, which was part of the, at that time, was still part of the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim, they um, had, a, had a much more extreme uh, position than the mainstream of Godis Yisrael in Poland, and therefore they wanted to basing it on the Hungarian model, where many of them had come from, of separating. Separating from Knesset Yisrael because Knesset Yisrael was controlled by the secularist elements, and religious Jews cannot remain within the secular community, so there's the Tailung in Hungary, so based on that model, the Eidah HaCharedis, which was the Agudis Yisrael in those days, in the land of Israel, um, and it was controlled by this Yerushalayim faction. So, and it was, you know, like I said, very conservative. They did have the support of the Frankfurt Agudists, because in Frankfurt, Rav Shamshin Hirsch, in the previous century, had supported that same position of Austrit, of removing oneself from a community that was controlled by non-religious uh, Jews. Uh, so therefore, it was the same idea. So, there, there was this this move to resign from the Knesset Yisrael and to and to not be not to be officially part of this recognized community. So uh, so the problem was is that there's this constant immigration during the fourth and fifth Aliyah of many Polish Jews who were against the idea. And as more Polish Jews, a good a good Polish Jews, Gerach Hasidim and the like, 
they settle in Tel Aviv and Petach Tikva and the other parts of the new Yishuv in the 1920s and 30s, this becomes a very contentious issue because they're not interesting, not interested, excuse me, in resigning from Knesset Yisrael as their mother organization, as the Agudis Yisrael in this country demands of them. So the issue comes to a head when there were many rabbis who were affiliated with Agudis Yisrael who refused to resign from the mainstream Jewish community, and remain in the employment of the chief rabbinate. In this regard, the Chazanish goes ahead and expresses an opinion which was a glimpse of his overall worldview and his approach to public policy for the religious minority in the Yishuv, and it was a line of reasoning that he'd stick to consistently until his passing. And the line of reasoning went as follows. The struggle is not political. It's religious-slash-cultural. It's not national, it's local. It's about what type of influence these rabbis can have on their communities, on individuals in the communities, and on institutions in their communities, Jewish education, religious infrastructure. Um, therefore, in the Chazanish's eyes, the political statement of resigning from the community and separating oneself has no meaning. The goal of all his subsequent public leadership was to be not political isolation, rather cultural reinforcement or cultural consolidation or cultural fortification. This is a which I a saying which I translated. It was coined by Professor Benny Brown, who was the biographer of the Chazanish. It really sums up best the leadership activity of the Chazanish throughout his later years. In other words, not political isolation, but rather cultural fortifying the, the, the religious position of, 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 of the community. Not political statements, but building religious institutions. That was the agenda of the Chazanish, and it seems that Rechaim Eizer supported his position. Rechaim Eizer continues to correspond regularly with the Chazanish, and had him involved in the rabbinical elections in Tel Aviv, to who would to, and also later on, who would be the successor of Rav Kook, where they both supported Rav Yitzhak Isaac Herzog's candidacy against Rabbi Yaakov Meishacharlap, and Rav Herzog, of course, won. Um, in many other halachic and political topics, Rav Chaim Eizer regularly corresponded with him. Rav Chaim Eizer would also report to him news from Poland and share his thoughts on various matters. So they kept very much in touch. I mentioned in part two about the founding of the Kail Chazanish, and I want to elaborate on that for a minute. In 1936, the Chazanish, together with some students of the Navardic Yeshiva, founded the first Kailal, which would be a place of study for young married students, the first ever Kailal in the new Yishuv in the land of Israel. And it was in the new neighborhood built by Yaakov Halpern, Zichron Meir, which I mentioned in part two, was named for Meir Shapiro, which was the first neighborhood possibly in the world, for sure in, in Palestine, that was to be closed to traffic on Shabbos and which would soon become the home of the Chazanish himself, not, not really soon, a decade later in, in 1937. Uh, so essentially this was a Navardic project, and it was named Ateres Yosef, after the, in the, you know, named for the altar of Navardic, or basically Yosef Horovitz. But a few years later, the Navardic faction moved it to Tel Aviv. So the Chazanish opened up his own Kailal there, and that was the nucleus of what later would come to be called, on his name, the Kailal Chazanish. Many see this as some sort of symbolic beginning to the birth of what later emerges as the Haredi society in Israel, which the Chazanish is seen as one of its founding fathers, and especially the component which the late Professor Menachem Friedman termed the Chevrat Halomdim, the Society of Learners, of which the Chazanish was certainly the pioneer of that revolutionary concept. 
and uh, and therefore this is considered the pioneering institution of that society. He oversaw the Kail's curriculum and even ensured living space for its members. One of the burning halacha questions of the 1930s in the, in the Yishev, which the Chazanish got involved with, was the which had deep social ramifications, was the milking on Shabbos saga. The Chazanish paskin that it is preferable to do as was done in Europe, that is to do the milking by a non-Jew. Now this wasn't so practical, it wasn't feasible really, for three reasons. Most Jewish agricultural settlements at the time, including the religious ones, believed in the ideal of Jewish labor, something that would eventually disappear from the uh, Israeli landscape in modern times, but at the time was considered a big ideal. The second thing was that very often they were reluctant to hire Arab labor because of the prevalence of the spread of disease due to the unhygienic conditions then common in many Palestinian villages. And the third reason was that after 1936, there was the security issue with the outbreak of the Great Arab Revolt, which is also an interesting story. So the Chazanish then paskin that a Jew can milk the cows, but it should go straight to waste. It goes straight onto the ground to waste. The milk should not be used. He made a public campaign for this purpose, which was supported from afar by Reb Chaim Eiser, Kibbutz Chavetz Chaim, which was the religious kibbutz of the Pelei Agudis Yisrael, along with other farming settlements associated with the Pelei Agudis Yisrael movement, abided by the Chazanish's stringent ruling. The uh, religious settlements associated with Mizrahi relied on the lenient view that milking may be done on Shabbos as well. This chapter may seemingly be insignificant in the big, ch- big picture of the Chazanish's biography, because, you know, we're just talking about milking cows, but it is a crucial one. Why? Because he had formed an opinion about the Mizrahi in Vilna, which was very much strengthened through this story. And the position that he had, the opinion that he had formed about Mizrahi was that he perceived that the Mizrahi was not limited to a political organization. And politics, like I said, was something that the Chazanish consistently was not on the top of his agenda at all. But what he saw was that it was also a socio-religious movement as well. And it found expression in what, in his opinion, was a widespread laxity in various mitzvahs and halachic precepts, to which the Chazanish, halacha was his life, and almost exclusively his life, that was the exclusive barometer by which he measured Yiddishkeit and the adherence thereof. So he could not handle this laxity, and it deeply colored his view of Mizrahi as a result, and he viewed it with a certain amount of askance, uh, to say the least. So it was due to its, its stance on halachic issues, and less with its political structure and platform, which raised the Chazanish's ire against religious Zionism. And this is a very, very important point for later on in his story. The next halachic issue which arose was, of course, Shemitah. This story really belongs in our long-ago but not forgotten Shemitah series, but since no sponsor has yet to come forth to continue that one, so I will briefly summarize the story and the Chazanish's involvement in it, which has a long-lasting impact until this very day. The first book he published in the land of Israel was regarding the laws of Shemitah. He delved into the topic full force, and he reached a conclusion that the Heter Mechira, to, the, to, to sell the land to non-Jews during the Shemitah year, was not a viable option, and it was not permitted. At this time, he was seen as the rabbinical supervisor for the religious agricultural settlements associated with the Pele Agudis Yisrael, and he greatly sympathized with the farmers and their plight. So along with his overall stringency about observing Shemitah without the Heter Mechira, he attempted to assist these farmers in three ways. 
This is one of his earliest forms of leadership, and it brought him to a larger stage than he had been up until this point. Number one, he formulated several small leniencies to lighten it up a bit, halachic leniencies to lighten it up a bit. Number two, he tried to morally strengthen them and inspire them personally. He had personal interactions with these farmers. And number three, he prevailed upon Agurus Yisrael as the world organization, with, from its headquarters in Europe, to organize financial assistance for the farmers to sustain them through the Shemitah year. So the pioneer of the concept of supporting the farmers actually comes from the Chazanish. This last attempt, incredibly enough, failed miserably, and the Chazanish and the farmers were actually quite disappointed by the Agudas Yisrael's unresponsiveness to the farmers' financial plight. Through this and several other endeavors, the Chazanish emerges as the unofficial rabbi, leader, and patron of the Pailei Agudas Yisrael and their farming uh, settlements. This connection was at its peak in the late 1930s and early 1940s and somewhat continued until the end of his life, but it did weaken a bit along the way. At around this time, Rabbi Chaim Eiser and Yaakov Rosenheim, the, the head of Agudis Yisrael in, in Europe, encouraged the Paila Agudis Yisrael in, in Palestine to adopt a rabbinical figure as their rabbi, and they, the Paila Agudis Yisrael in turn turned to the Chazanish as their preferred candidate. And as he always did throughout his life, he turned it down because he never wanted to take any official position. And eventually the position goes, actually, ironically, interestingly enough, to the Chazanish's older brother, Amir Karelitz, who becomes the spiritual guide of the Pele Agudis Yisrael. So the Chazanish does stay closely involved. And it's at around this time that the Chazanish is also involving himself in, in, uh, in more local stuff, like in the Bnei Brak elections which is something he'd do till the end of his life. He'd always be involved in the local municipal elections in Bnei Brak. And, and that's where the Chazanish is standing when the war breaks out. That's the extent of his public activity. The Poyle Agudis Yisrael farmer, farmers and local stuff in Bnei Brak. Uh, the war brings both tragedy and fame to the Chazanish. On one hand, he lost four of his siblings, their spouses and their children. A very large portion of his family is lost in the Holocaust. In addition... His mother, who was living in Yerushalayim at the time, she passed away in the fall of 1940s. He lost his mother. Shortly prior to that, his patron, Reb Chaim Grzynski, passed away in Vilna. And he mourned him, as well as the other two great Torah leaders who passed away at the same time, uh, several months earlier, rather. Reb Shimon Shkap, Reb Baruch Ber uh, Great losses to the Torah world, which are, with the Chazanish felt uh, greatly. On the other hand, it was specifically during the war years, and especially following Reb Chaim Eiser's passing, that the Chazanish began to become a well-known uh, uh, leadership figure. Up until 1940-41, his circle of influence was limited to Bnei Brak and the Pele Yagaris Yisrael Kibbutzim, and a small portion of the rabbinic elite. Well, that was actually worldwide, but it was a very small portion of the rabbinic elite. Um, beyond that, he was literally a complete unknown. Several things gradually happened in the early 1940s which lead to his re- reputation becoming more well-known. Number one, he begins to issue halachic decisions which had a wider scope of impact, not just local issues. Number two, he begins to polemicize with others with whom he disputed their halachic views. Number three, he began to project independent leadership qualities in public affairs which were not even halacha-related. Uh, number four, his scope of influence on the educational institutions which were emerging grows significantly. He becomes very involved 
in the founding of other yeshivas. He becomes directly involved with the affairs and activities and curriculum in other yeshivas that he, you know, he 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 pushes for their building and for their opening and for their founding and then for their running afterwards. And he, especially with individual yeshiva students, he corresponds with them, he meets with them, he studies with them. Um, he becomes the father to the emerging uh, yeshiva students and, and yeshiva institutions that are, you know, start to, uh, uh, you know, be built in the new yeshiv. Number five is what really brought him into the public sphere for the first time was his involvement in the international dateline dispute in the summer and fall of 1941. And that is really what put him on the map, so to speak. In fact, it's Rev Herzog, the chief rabbi, who can really kind of receive credit for the beginning to bring him to the attention of wider circles, at least in halachic psak, because he starts to send him uh, big halacha challenges, like aguna questions, which is always a status. Uh, and he referred other rabbis to ask the Chazanish their complicated questions. And he begins to have a correspondence with other rabbis in major halachic issues as a result. Um, in the Chazanish's personal life, the same 1940s saw his situation as quite challenging as well. And I keep on coming back to this because I find it to be a fascinating part of his biography, is that his wife, Rebetzin Basha, um, who was always a problem, and now she enters her final and most severe decline. Her mental health basically collapsed at this point, and she completely breaks down. Uh, she was very abusive towards the Chazanish in the later years. She screamed at him and called him names. She prevented people from coming to visit him. He'd sometimes have to meet people by the window. He himself, to avoid incurring her wrath, would often enter and exit his own house through the window. It's, I mean, just that sounds incredible. Um, his response to her, uh, when she tried to limit the hours in which he received visitors, so his response was, I'm not a lawyer who has set hours. According to another source who was uh, even more derogatory, he said, I'm not a Rebbe. Either way, he wanted his home to be open to those who wished to seek his advice, his blessing, or his halachic opinion, to be open at all hours every day, which I find quite ironic that this tradition of the Chazanish has uh, not really been adopted by many uh, who seek to follow every single custom of the Chazanish. Um, this one seems to have fall, fallen out uh, by the wayside. One of the most astounding attributes of the Chazanish, and perhaps the most overlooked, was how he dealt with his wife in these later years of his life. He suffered from her, but treated her with the utmost respect and really felt her pain. He'd encourage some of his visitors to say hello to her or to bring their wives to schmooze with her uh, so she wouldn't feel so lonely and neglected. He never complained or responded to any of the abuse she heaped upon him. He did his utmost not to upset her in any way. The most he ever did was when one of his students felt so terrible upon witnessing a tirade directed at him by his wife that he, the student invited the Chazanish to come for a few weeks to his home in Yerushalayim for a slight respite from her. Uh, he responded that perhaps if she was the one invited to Yerushalayim, then everyone involved would benefit. It is often said that it, and that it can't be overstated how crucial it is for any great Torah leader throughout history that his greatness was achieved largely due to his wife. And there are literally endless illustrations of this. However, here we have an incredible phenomenon that the Chazanish was able to accomplish what he did, not with his wife's support, but rather despite his wife's distractions. And this really adds a whole new dimension to the Chazanish's greatness, which he was able to accomplish, which is largely unknown and not discussed. In the public arena... We mentioned that the Chazanish was beginning to become more public. Um, this was manifested with 
like I said, the international dateline affair. I devoted an entire episode to this narrative of the whole international dateline when the Polish Jewish refugees were in Japan, were in Koba, Japan, including the Mir Yeshiva and many other religious Jews and the other non-religious Jews who weren't concerned about it also, but uh, many other rabbis, and, and uh, uh, it's, it's a whole story, so you could check out that episode. But the Chazanish plays an important role here. Before the Yom Kippur question, when it came, arose again about which day to observe Yom Kippur, uh, uh, the, which day to fast on Yom Kippur, so again, the chief rabbi, Rabbi Isaac Herzog, calls a conference of leading rabbis to discuss the issue, and the Chazanish declined the invitation to participate. The consensus of this conclave, so to speak, was to observe Yom Kippur on Wednesday, which was the regular day, quote-unquote, the regular day, the the day that, that it was accepted to be Wednesday in Japan, of Yom Kippur. Chazanish, on his own initiative, on his own accord, sent what's now a famous telegram, which arrived before the telegram from the Jerusalem rabbis. So he beat them to it, he, he initiated it, and he got it there before them. And he said these words, I'm going to quote it exactly and then translate it. Achim Yikarim, my dear brothers, Ichlu baravi v'tsumu tainus yom kippur b'yayim hachamishi. Eat on Wednesday and fast the yom kippur fast on Thursday. Va'al tachushu l'shum dover and don't worry about anything. Now it's printed in his collection of letters, but I remember hearing it on many occasions, many, many occasions from Reb Natta Freund of blessed memory, who I was privileged to have a close relationship with, and he was close to the Chazanish, and he would always add that the Chazanish was questioned. How can he write in there, Ichlu Baravi, go eat on Wednesday? According to most rabbis, Wednesday was Yom Kippur, and he's literally commanding the refugees to eat. So he said in with the utmost confidence, he said Wednesday is Erev Yom Kippur, and therefore it's a mitzvah to eat. That's how confident he was and courageous of him as an almost anonymous and unknown at the time, to issue this bold psaac on an obscure and complicated topic with possible ramifications for hundreds of people, literally on his own. This brought him, this brings him into the spotlight, naturally, and this is ironic, ironic because this is despite the fact that most did not even abide by his ruling, but it still, uh, um, you know, it brings him to the spotlight. Around this time, um, he begins to receive many more visitors, and that was interesting. Is that what's interesting about it is that their queries were not limited to halachic ones. They come asking about business ventures. They come asking marriage advice, and they come for medical advice. They also come for blessings. He actually gains renown for his medical advice, especially. This essentially was almost, he would become almost like a Hasidic Rebbe. And it also sets the stage for the development of the idea of what came to be known as Das Torah, that has what to say, that great Torah scholars have what to say about all sorts of life issues beyond the scope of strict halacha. And it was through the personality and leadership of the Chazanish that this idea kind of gains traction. And although it's not our topic, though the history of the development of Das Torah is an absolutely fascinating discussion, we'll save that for another time when, when my kids are all married. So the Chazanish was a key link in the development, and, is, and it's definitely a component of his legacy. Um, so the Chazanish took several young yeshiva students under his wing at this time, and they come from very diverse backgrounds. There are Yerushalmis who discover him. Who you know? Rabbi Chaim Brim, Rabbi Moshe Shielandau, Rabbi Yudel Shapiro, Rabbi Nata Freind, etc. There were several others, uh, and Rabbi Chaim Brim, who I was very close with, who, who I knew very well, 
So he was known, him and Ramesh Shilando especially, were known, the Chazanish referred to them as my children. Again, the Chazanish was childless. And these students who became very, very close with him in learning and life, they used to stay by him. And, and uh, he called them Mein Kind. They were, they were his children. Um, there were others among the early yeshiva students in Bnei Brak, while still others were from the new yeshiva and less yeshiva background. In this context, it should be mentioned that the next major public project which the Chazanish initiated threw himself into, completely devoted and delved into, his, devoted his energies to. In fact, it could be argued that this project becomes the prime focus of the remainder of his life, at least as far as his public projects go, which is the founding of yeshivas, both in Bnei Brak itself and across the new yeshiv. And it was pretty much only in the new yeshiv. He had very little to do with what anything would happen in Yerushalayim. By some accounts, his first visit to Yerushalayim was for his nephew, Reb Shlema Shimshin Karelitz's wedding, which was the son of his brother, Reb Meir Karelitz. And that was in 1940. If that's true, which I have my doubts if it's true or not, then that's astounding because that's seven years after his arrival in the Holy Land and the claim is made that this was his first visit to Yerushalayim. He had a few other visits afterwards to Yerushalayim. One of his famous visits to Yerushalayim was in 1946 to attend the funeral of Rabbi Shiblau, the head of the Agudis Yisrael in Palestine. And it was at this funeral with thousands in attendance that the Chazanish spots someone who he had never seen before. And he discerned something about him, and he picks him out of the crowd, and he asked one of those next to him, he points to this person, and he says, Where is their Yid? Who is that Jew? And he was told that it was Rabdoiv Beresh Weidenfeld, the Chabina Rav, who was one of the greatest Torah leaders who had recently arrived in the land of Israel after surviving the Holocaust. So it was incredible that the Chazanish, and I heard this from Amnata Freins, so I know it's a true story, and the Chazanish had spotted something about him. He stuck out in this entire crowd. The two had never met prior. The, the Chabina Rav was, of course, a Galicianer, and, and he, they'd never crossed paths before, and here the Chazanish was able to sense that this was someone special. Either way, the Chazanish was heavily involved in various yeshiva projects over the ensuing years, and he saw Torah education as the only project worth investing in, as the political struggles were less appealing to him, even though he would get involved in political stuff in the last years of his life. But, but still, the primary focus was, was the, the education of, 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 of uh, building these institutions. In many of these projects, he worked in tandem with the Panavish Rav, of and much of the funding arrangements were done by the Chazanish's protege, Yaakov Halprin. Now, with the realization of the scope of the destruction during the Holocaust, once the, the dust settled and the war was over, and everyone realized what the scope of the destruction, he took practical action in two areas. First of all, he became available for many of the survivors, the refugees who came to pour out their heart to him. He became literally an address as a shoulder to cry on. Amazing personal relationship that he was able to be open for all these people to come to him. And they, they knocked down his door. They literally came to him by the hundreds, perhaps even by the thousands. Um, and also, the second, the second venue was this intensive rebuilding campaign of the Torah world. In 1947, with everything else going on, a fascinating and somewhat obscure and even strange halachic dispute arose. Uh, several years earlier, Bafram Chaim Naya, a great Paisik and rabbi, um, published his work on halachic sizes and measurements, which is a great story. Perhaps we have to have an episode devoted to that someday as well. Um, in which he defended the tradition and the custom then prevalent 
of the smaller sizes of the, all these halachic requirements, such as a kazayas or a vias. Um, and the Chazanish went with a more stringent view of the Naidi Behuder, Bechaskal Landau. And this dispute, the dispute itself is not so interesting. And even if it is interesting, but it's for another time. But I want to point out something else, which is both relevant for understanding Chazanish's biography and his influence, as well as seeing the broader picture of trends in the Jewish world at the time. Revram Chaim Noe was defending the accepted custom of the people. The Chazanish argued that the common man custom has no meaning. Only a custom accepted by the great Torah scholars, as expressed in their written texts, has meaning. Now remember that this dispute is taking place in the 1940s. It took place in a community of immigrants in Palestine, without, with, you know, it didn't have much of an old living tradition, aside from the old Yishev in Yerushalayim. And it can't, comes in the larger spectrum of the Jewish world, it comes following decades of large-scale emigration across the Jewish world, which shook the foundations of the communities with a living tradition. And this, of course, was culminated with the large-scale destruction of the Holocaust, which completely decimated the living tradition. In this context, the Chazanish's position that a text tradition supersedes the living tradition began to hold sway with many in the Jewish community. In 1947, the Chazanish also finally moves to Zichron Meir, the neighbor that he had helped initiate uh, a decade earlier. He lived with his sister Miriam and her husband, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, the stipler, and considering his wife's uh, deteriorating condition, and limitations, so it was really his sister, Rebetzin Miriam Kanievsky, who took care of the, all the needs of the Chazanish during the uh, years, these years until his passing. With the UN partition plan in November 1947, and then the founding of the State of Israel in 1948, the War of Independence, the forming of the first government, the first elections, and all that going on, the Agudas Yisrael and many community activists and politicians, they seek out the Chazanish's guidance and advice as to the approach which should be taken in regards to the religious community's relationship with the state. With these pressing needs of the hour, the Chazanish's complete silence on all these issues can only be seen as the proverbial thundering silence. He simply did not respond. This was in regard to recognizing the state, participation within the, the institutions of the state, presenting a united religious front together with Mizrahi, voting in the elections, all of these issues, the Chazanish maintains his silence. And uh, he does not express a clear opinion. And again, again, it's related in the bigger context of his you know, lack of interest in getting too heavily involved and taking a stance on political issues, except when he eventually, when he's eventually to feel that there's an existential threat presented to the religious community, which took place during the last years of his life. So I see from the time is that we did not even get to the last years of his life, which is really the story of the Chazanish, the last five years of his life from the founding of the State of Israel until his passing in 1953. That's the big story. That's where his fame comes from. That's where his leadership comes from. And that will have to be for a future part four of the Chazanish, which I hope happens very soon. I'm looking forward to that, and I hope uh, you are as well. So this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy.